Hey there, welcome to this special bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Though Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata was written over 200 years ago, this particular piece is just as captivating as ever. That's just the way it is with the classics. They're so great that they end up transcending in some way their own era, which is why each successive generation ends up passing it down to the next, saying in effect, you've got to check this out. In Beethoven's time, there was an English theologian by the name of Richard Watley, who, though he was quite a well-known and prolific author in his day, has largely been forgotten in our own time. Watley was an Anglican theologian who wrote on a host of topics, and on this particular episode, I'll be reading selections from his book on the introduction to Christian evidences written for young students back in the 1830s. I too was unfamiliar with Richard Watley until about a year ago when I first began reading his books. And when I discovered what he had to say about the nature of faith, I think you'll understand why I decided to share this classic text with my listeners, saying in effect, you've got to check this out. Now, one thing I should know before I begin is that this week I didn't end up releasing a new episode due to the level of production involved in the program I'm currently working on, which is one of the reasons I decided to release this bonus episode. For the time being, I've made bonus episodes available to everyone, but please know that in the near future, they will only be available to paid subscribers. And now here are selections from The Introduction to Christian Evidences by Richard Wadley. If anyone were to ask you how you came to be a Christian, perhaps you would answer that it is because you were born and brought up in a Christian country and that your parents were Christians and it taught you to believe that the Christian religion is true. And if again your parents were asked the same question, perhaps they might give the same answer. They might say that their parents had brought them up as Christians, and so on. Perhaps, however, they would have some better reason than this to give for believing in their religion, but then, most likely, they are acquainted with other persons who have not. For it is certain that there is many a professed Christian who can give no other reason for his being so than that he received the religion from his parents, and they from theirs, and so on, for many generations back. But you know that it cannot always have been so. You know that the Christian religion had a beginning. You know that the disciples of Jesus Christ and their followers went about among various nations making converts to his religion, among people who had been worshippers of the sun and moon and of various false gods. Our forefathers were among those nations. In former days, the people of the British Isles were what we call heathen or pagans, that is, worshippers of a number of supposed gods whom they believed to govern the world and to whom they offered sacrifices and prayers. We have among us a kind of monument of this in the names of the days of the week, each day having been dedicated or made sacred to some one of their gods. Thus the first day of the week, which we sometimes call the Lord's Day in honor of the resurrection of Jesus, still keeps also the name of Sunday from its having been dedicated in former times to the worship of the sun, as Monday was to the moon, Tuesday to Teus, Wednesday to Woden, Thursday to Thor, and so of the rest. Now our forefathers who were worshippers of these gods would have told anyone who might have questioned them on the subject that this was the religion of their country and what they had learned from their parents. And at the present day, there are many nations still in the same condition with our forefathers. Great numbers have been brought up as pagans and worship various false gods. 
and there are many who are followers of Muhammad, whom they hold to be a prophet superior to Jesus Christ. Now what I want you to consider is this. Have you any better reason for believing in the truth of the Christian religion than a Muslim has for believing in his religion or the pagans in theirs? And do you think you can learn and ought to learn to give some better reason? They believe what their parents have told them merely for that reason and because it is the religion of their country and the wisest men of that nation have told them it is true. If you are content to do the same, then though there may be a great difference between your religion and theirs, there is no difference at all in the grounds of your belief and theirs. If ten persons, for example, all hear different accounts of some transaction and each believes just what he happens to hear from his next-door neighbor, then if nine of those accounts are false and one true, he who chances to have heard the true one is right only by accident and has no better grounds for his belief than the rest. In the same manner, if several different persons hold each the religion of their fathers and have no other reason and seek no other reason for doing so, then, though one of them may happen to believe a true religion and the rest false ones, it is plain he has no better grounds for his belief than they. What he believes may be in itself right, but we cannot say that he is more right in so believing it. Now, do you think it's the duty of each man to keep the religion of his fathers without seeking any proofs of its being true, but satisfied with merely taking it on trust because his teachers have told him so? Well, if so, our forefathers would have been wrong in renouncing their pagan religion and embracing Christianity. They had been brought up in the worship of the sun and moon and Woden and the other gods, and so had the ancient Greeks and Romans to whom the apostles preached. This had been the long-established religion of their country, handed down to them from their forefathers, many of whom were great statesmen and wise and learned writers. And if this had been a sufficient reason for them keeping to it without inquiry, they would have been bound to reject the gospel and continue as pagans. And this we know is what many of them did, refusing to listen to the apostles and others who offered them proof that the Christians had not followed cunningly devised fables in making known to them the coming and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.16 Now, we cannot think that these men acted more wisely than those pagans who set themselves to inquire what was true and who did embrace Christianity. These last men must have had strong reasons for doing as they did. It could not have been from love of change for its own sake or mere idle whim, for we know that many of them had to face ridicule and blame and sometimes persecution from their friends and countrymen. And what's more, they had to change their mode of life and renounce, on becoming Christians, many evil habits which had been tolerated in the pagan religions. For we find the apostles, Paul especially, speaking often of the abominable vices which the pagans have been accustomed to indulge and which the converts to Christianity were required to abstain from. At the beginning of Ephesians 2, he says, And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, whereas in former times you walked according to the course of this world fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Peter tells the Christians he was writing to, in 1 Peter 4, verse 3, that the time past of their life may suffice to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, i.e. to have lived as the Gentiles did, according to their sinful inclinations, wherein, he says, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same excess of riot. And you will find mention made in many other parts of the New Testament of the change of life which the Christians submitted to. Now, it must be a difficult thing for a man to bring himself to throw off, as the early converts of Christianity must have done, his early habits and his veneration for the gods of his country, in whose worship he had been brought up, and his reverence for wise and illustrious and powerful men among his countrymen, 
and his regard for the good opinion of his neighbors, and also his care for his own peace and safety. Yet all of this must have been done by many of those of our forefathers and other pagans who first embraced the Christian religion. They must, therefore, have had a strong conviction of the truth of the religion, not from their having been brought up in it as you were, for it was quite the contrary with them, but for some other reason. They must have had some convincing evidence of its truth, or else we may be sure that they would not have received it. And these men could not have been convinced of the truth of the gospel by any such experience as many Christians have, of that inward consolation and peace of mind and enlightening of the understanding produced by their religion, which affords them a satisfactory assurance of its coming from God. For those who have not embraced Christianity could not have had this experience. And yet some convincing proofs they must have had to lead them to embrace it, in spite of so many prejudices and so many difficulties. And it appears that they were taught by the apostles not only to have a reason, but also to be able to give a reason to others for the faith which they held. Be ready always, says the apostle Peter, to give an answer or defense to everyone who asks, a reason for the hope that is in you. And it does certainly seem very fair that they should be asked by their neighbors and should be expected to answer the question, why do you renounce the gods of our country and embrace the religion of this Jesus and call on us to do the same? This, I say, would appear a very fair question to be asked of persons living in the midst of pagans and educated as such. But perhaps you may think that this was not at all intended to apply to you who have had the happiness of being brought up in a Christian country. You should remember, however, that you may sometime or other chance to meet with some of these pagans or Muslims whom we have been speaking of, to some of whom we have sent missionaries to convert them. And besides this, you may hereafter meet with persons of our own nation who doubt or disbelieve the truth of Christianity, and their doubt or disbelief is likely to be very much strengthened if they find that you have no better reason for being Christians than the Turks have for being Muslims, or the ancient Greeks and Romans for worshipping Jupiter, or your own forefathers, Thor and Woden, namely that such is the religion of the country. They will be apt to say, these religions cannot all be true, but they may be all equally false. They are perhaps only so many different forms of superstition in which the people of different countries have been brought up, and which they all believe in, each because they have all been brought up in it, without seeking for any other reason. The Apostle's direction, therefore, you may be sure, applies to all Christians in every age and country. It is needful for all of them to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in them. And among others, you may give as one reason what I have just put before you, that those who first embraced Christianity, renouncing for it as they did their early prejudices and their habits, and often their friends and their comfort and safety in this world, must have had some strong evidence to convince them that it was true. It is not merely from the Christian writers of the New Testament that we learn how much those persons had to bear who embraced the gospel. We may be sure, even from the very nature of the case, how great their difficulties must have been, and therefore we could feel no doubt that when they did become Christians, it must have been on some strong reasons, even though we had no knowledge what those reasons were. It is possible for us, however, to inquire and to learn what the reasons were which satisfied them of the truth of the Christian religion. And it must, therefore, be a duty for all who have the opportunity to learn what proofs it rests on, that they may be ready to give an answer to those that ask them for the reason of their hope. And you should observe also that the apostles not only required their converts to be ready to give a reason, but must themselves have supplied them with the reasons, since they could not have made them converts without offering proofs to satisfy them that Christianity was true. 
And this is the one point which distinguishes the Christian religion from those of the pagans, for it does not appear that any of these religions ever made any appeal to proof or claim to be received except from there being the ancient established belief of the country. The Christian religion was brought in, in opposition to all these, by means of the reasons given, the evidence, which convinced the early Christians that the religion did truly come from God. It must, therefore, be the duty of every Christian to learn what that evidence is. Lesson 2. Faith and Credulity Our forefathers and the other pagans who embraced the gospel must have had some strong reasons to shake off their habits of life and their early prejudices and their veneration for the gods they had been brought up to worship for the sake of Christ and his religion, which were new to them. But perhaps you may suppose that their ancient religions also must have been embraced by their forefathers in the same manner, i.e. that the worship of the sun and moon and Jupiter and the rest of their gods must have been first brought in by strong proofs, or at least by what were thought to be strong proofs. But this does not appear to have been the case. This at least is certain, that it was not even pretended that these religions rested on any evidence worth listening to. A pagan's reason for holding his religion is, and always was, that it had been handed down from his ancestors. They did, indeed, relate many miracles said to have been wrought through their gods, but almost all of these they spoke of, as having been wrought among the people who were already worshippers of those gods, not as having been the means of originally bringing in the religion, and all the pagan miracles they believed merely because they were part of the religion which they had learned from their fathers. They never even pretended to give any proof that these miracles had ever been performed. As has been said, the Christian religion was distinguished from these by its resting on evidence, by its offering a reason, and requiring Christians to be able to give a reason for believing it. Some persons, however, have a notion that it is presumptuous for a Christian to seek any proof of the truth of his religion. They suppose that this would show a lack of faith. They know that faith is often and highly commended in Scripture as the Christian's first duty, and they fancy that this faith consists in a person's readily and firmly believing what is told him, and trusting in every promise that is made to him, and that the less reason he has for believing and for trusting, and the less he doubts and inquires and seeks for grounds for his belief and his confidence, the more faith he shows. But this is quite a mistake. The faith which the Christian scriptures speak of and commend is the very contrary of that blind sort of belief and trust, which does not rest on any good reason. This is more properly called credulity than faith. When a man believes without evidence or against evidence, he is what we rightly call credulous, but he is never commended for this. 
On the contrary, we often find in Scripture mention made of persons who are reproached for their unbelief or lack of faith precisely on account of their showing this kind of credulity. That is, not judging fairly according to the evidence, but resolving to believe only what was agreeable to their prejudices, and to trust anyone who flattered those prejudices. This was the case with those of the ancient pagans who refused to forsake the worship of the sun and moon, and of Jupiter and Diana and all the other gods. Many of the Ephesians, as you read in the book of Acts, raised a tumult against Paul in their zeal for the goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from heaven. Now, if a man's faith is to be reckoned the greater, the less evidence he has for believing, these men must have had greater faith than anyone who received the gospel because they believed in their religion without any evidence at all. But what our sacred writers mean by faith is quite different from this. When they commend a man's faith, it is because he listens fairly to evidence and judges according to the reasons laid before him. The difficulty and the virtue of faith consists in a man's believing and trusting not against evidence, but against his expectations and prejudices, against his inclinations, passions, and interests. We read accordingly that Jesus offered sufficient proof of his coming from God. He said, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. If you believe not me... Believe the works themselves. That is, if you have not the heart to feel the purity and holiness of what I teach, at least you should allow this, that no man can do such miracles unless God be with him. And yet we are told that though he had done so many miracles among them, not everyone believed. They did acknowledge that he worked miracles, as the unbelieving Jews acknowledged at the present day, but they had expected that the Messiah, whom they looked for, should come in great worldly power and splendor, as a conquering prince who should deliver them from the domination of the Romans and should make Jerusalem the capital of a magnificent empire. They were disappointed and offended at finding Jesus coming from Nazareth and having no worldly pomp or pretensions about him and having only poor fishermen and peasants as his attendants. Accordingly, they rejected him, saying, Shall the Christ come out of Nazareth? As for this man, we know not who he is. No prophet comes from Galilee." And they persuaded themselves, as their descendants do to this day, that Jesus was a skillful magician and performed miracles not by divine power, but by the help of some evil spirits with whom he had allied himself. Though he went about doing good, healing the sick and afflicted, and teaching the purest morality, they reckoned him a deceiver who cast out demons through Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But if he had come among them offering to fulfill their expectations and undertaking to deliver their country from the Romans, then even though he had shown no miraculous power, many of them would have received him readily. And indeed, it is recorded of him that he declared this himself and foretold to his disciples, saying, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And again, I come in my Father's name, that is, with my Father's authority and power, and you receive me not." And yet, if another shall come in his own name, that is, requiring to be believed on his bare word without any miraculous signs, him you will receive. And so it came to pass, for in the last siege of Jerusalem many impostors came forward, each one claiming to be the Christ, and drawing multitudes to follow him, and leading them to make the most desperate resistance to the Romans, till at length the city was taken, and the nation utterly overthrown. Now the Jews who believed any one of these impostors were led to do so by their prejudices and expectations and wishes, not by any proof that was offered. They showed, therefore, more credulity than the Christians did. And these unbelieving Jews, as they are called, are the very persons who were reproached by the apostles for their lack of faith. 
you may plainly see from this that the faith which the Christian writers speak of is not blind credulity, but fairness in listening to evidence and judging accordingly, without being led away by prejudices and inclinations. Moreover, we find in the book of Acts that the Jews of Berea were commended as being more noble than those of Thessalonica, because they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so, things which the apostles taught about Jesus throughout the Old Testament. It is plain, therefore, that Jesus and his apostles did not mean by Christian faith a blind assent without any reason. And if we would be taught by them, we must be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. You've been listening to the first two chapters of the Introduction to Christian Evidences by Richard Watley, and I'll continue reading from this 1830s classic on the next bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Thanks for joining me.